I'm going to hope it's okay to not wear a jacket. Is that all right? Yeah. I see if Greg doesn't have a jacket, I shouldn't have to wear one, right? Good. Uh, this is on and this is working. All right, I apologize for this outline that I gave you. It's kind of long and it, there's no way you can actually read it because it, I had to make it an eight-point font. All I can tell you is my notes were a lot longer and so I thought I should uh, give you something that, you know, if you go back and you want to hear, you know, look up a quote or a particular thing. Um, and, of course, I always have lots of references to books that you may want to buy and I think uh, Byron's going to have several of them out there. Um, I basically am, am titling this talk, Calvin and the Arts, Some Trajectories from His Thought. The reason I chose that title is because one of the interesting things to me in thinking about the arts and thinking within uh, kind of the Reformed tradition is that Calvin has some wonderful things to say that are very freeing and very helpful and very inspiring to artists. And yet he also has to, some things to say that are less than helpful. And the tradition has, has wrestled with these things a lot. Uh, but what's really interesting to me is whereas, you know, Calvin, as I'm going to talk about a little bit, eventually got to the point not only of just advocating psalms were the only things to be sung in church, he was very, pretty negative towards any kind of visual art within church, and he eventually even asked the city council in Geneva to actually ban all vocal music except for psalm singing in the in the town right that's not necessarily the most sort of inviting kind of context for artists right but what's really fascinating is that some of the best work that's been done recently thinking about how christians can engage the arts are from people in the reformed tradition and what the reason i think that is is because there are trajectories in his thought there are ideas that he helps bring to light from the bible that when they're thought through and the dots get connected, maybe more than even Calvin connected them, they actually have a lot to say uh, in an encouraging way about us engaging the arts and thinking biblically about creativity and all those sorts of things. So trajectories from his thought. There are places where Calvin wouldn't agree with some of the things I'm going to say, but, uh, but I think that his thought points in these directions. So you can be the judge of that, but let's, let's dive into this. I want to give you a little bit of historical context first, because there is really a shift from the medieval period to the Reformation. Now, a lot of people, it's common to say that the medieval period was completely a visual culture and that with the Reformation, now the word takes precedent. Uh, and I think that while that's generally true, it can be overstated, overstated. Um, it, it is true, I think, generally to say that believers in the medieval period saw that the primary sort of goal of spirituality was what Aquinas called the beatific vision. This idea that, that what you see and what you would see through the eyes of faith uh, is, is, really, is really key. And the way that you get that is more uh, through the eyes, privilege, more than the ear. It uh, would be hard to put yourself in that setting, but to think of, you know, in a context where really maybe 5% of the people know how to read uh, they're going to church, and so much of what is going on they don't understand because it's being conducted in Latin, a language they don't understand. The priest, for the most important part of the service, has his back to them doing all this kind of stuff up here. And then there's this almost magical moment where he turns around and he lifts up the host, the bread, and, and it's just this powerful visual image in a context, in, in a church building filled with images religious art, 
Um, it, it, by the time of the, the medieval period, especially the, the middle to late medieval period, there's just an, an increase in, um, in artwork, um, in church, in sponsorship of artists doing artwork for the church. There is also, people are beginning for the first time, common people can make pilgrimages to see relics. It, it, so much of, of your faith is about things that you see. Uh, but in the late medieval period, there really is also an increase in people wanting to hear things. Uh, the people are flocking to hear preachers even before the medieval uh, period is over. And there's beginning to be some critiques about visual, the visual and the images, whereas the images are supposed to contribute to faith. In a lot of ways, uh, there are some people that are beginning to be very concerned that the images, these external images, are actually distracting people from the internal image and view of Christ by faith that they should be having, right? So some of these reform, the, the critiques that the reformers offer were actually already going on before the reformers show up on the scene. There actually was a, a growing use of images, not only in the churches, but around 1460 is when uh, people begin to, the, these devotional books which combine text, scripture, as well as pictures that illustrate it, uh, begin to be produced, as well as around 1500, there are what, what are called broadsheets, where basically, you know, they'll print out kind of a paper, and you can take it home. So this is interesting, because now, for the first time, you can have these images portable with you. You can take them home. You can take them to church with you. So that when, when the, you know, church is going on, you can be looking at your devotional book and looking at the pictures and trying to kind of understand and feel closer to God all through the visual images, right? Now, I think that one of the things that's interesting to think about is at the dawn of the Reformation, you have quite a lot of this, uh, what we call the iconoclastic movement, where people begin to be really angry about the images and the, and the way the images had been used and the way the art had been used, right? And a lot of art historians and people will talk about, oh, you know, this horrible thing. You know, here the Reformation comes, and the first thing it does is it destroys all the art in the buildings. Um, I think one of the things that's helpful, there's a guy, William Dearness, who has a recent book called Reform Theology and Visual Culture. And he has a helpful thing. I, I put the quote down here for you. I think I'm on number point four actually, by now. He says this, um, what made those who worshipped the images as a child? Well, you need to understand, for instance, William Farrell, who's the guy who really brought the Reformation to Geneva. He's the guy who, a couple years later, when Calvin was passing through, found out Calvin was there and basically threatened him and said, called down you know, God's curses on his rest and on his studies if he didn't stay in Geneva and help them. And uh, so Calvin stayed. But William Farrell, you know, as a child, his parents are taking him to visit relics. But by the time he's an adult and he's come to understand, you know, the Reformed gospel, you know, he's part of this movement of removing, you know, art from the buildings. It was a very quick transition, do you understand? Um, and William Dearness uh, asked this question, I think this is helpful to think about, in trying to kind of get a little of the context. This is important in understanding Calvin's views on visual art and music. He says this, What made those who worshipped the images as a child turn on the image in iconoclastic rage as an adult? The issue goes to the heart of people's search for salvation and the elements they believe mediated this search. How could, you, how could you find God? What were the elements? The issue for them, which the reformers would address, was the following. Where is God to be found? Is God truly accessible through these medieval practices, the art, 
the, you know, all the different things that you were supposed to do according to the church. Uncertainty about these questions would strike terror in the heart of those who were finding no satisfaction in medieval practices. Uh, sorry, in, in, uh, ritual, in their common rituals. Found no satisfaction in their common rituals. Something of the depth of the feelings these things aroused is shown in a play written by the Swiss Protestant Nicholas Manuel in 1532. Okay, so this is, this is a, a Protestant play. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit about. In one scene, the characters reflect on the indulgence market. Do you know what indulgences were? Um, if, if you felt that God was upset with you or you felt that you needed to get right with God again, you could basically buy an indulgence. Now, of course, you know, the theology that the, the Roman Catholic Church would articulate was more sophisticated than this. But in, in the practical understanding of the people, it, it was basically allowed you to spend some money to know that then you would be absolved and God would kind of get off your back. It really, in a lot of settings, had become uh, quite crass. And so, the, you know, some, in this play, the characters are reflecting on the indulgence market and the way you could go buy these things. And one must have spoken for many when he recounted his experience of being placed under a ban for insulting the Pope. So he insulted the Pope, and then, you know, he's, he's been, uh, you know, c- condemned now, and he's in trouble. In mortal fear, he says, he and his wife took their precious egg money and rushed to Bern, the city of Bern, to buy an indulgence. When they returned home, exhausted and hungry, they fell on their knees and worshipped the indulgence. I believed I had seen the very God himself, he confessed. But later, after he realized that this indulgence was worthless and realized the depth of his deception, and that's key, he became enraged and took the letter of indulgence and wiped his posterior end with it. He says... Now, you know, this is, what I want you to understand is Calvin is coming into a context in which people had felt that they had been deeply betrayed and misled. You understand, right? They felt that they had, been, they had been sold a bill of goods. They had been told that this is the way that you come to faith. And it was already, the cracks in that system were already showing. People were not finding satisfaction anymore through these, these visuals. The other thing that was happening through the mystics and their influence was that people were no longer thinking that the heart of spirituality was um, just kind of seeing things, but they began to think that it was important that we actually have strong feelings and resonate with these sorts of things. And there's already a shift happening to the internal. This is what's kind of going on. And so what happens, you see, whereas modern people like us, we think the imagination is a good thing. But generally, the reformers saw it as a potentially pretty dangerous thing. Because of the way it had been used... It really was, it's through the imagination and through this kind of visual sight that you come to be connected to God. And they really saw this as a, as a deeply dangerous uh, sort of thing. Now, of course, here's the interesting thing is, in so many ways, what the reformers are doing engages the imagination. Uh, so many of their sermons, so many of the songs that are sung um, are full of imaginative images that engage the imagination. But in general, when they talk about um, art, a lot, of their, a lot of their language is really couched in terms of this is dangerous and we need to be careful about some of these practices. You get that more from Luther, you, I mean, sorry, more from Calvin, even more so from Zwingli, a little less than in Luther, but, but still some of that. Um, another thing that's helpful to understand about the context, people no longer, the common people no longer sang in church. I don't know if you know if you know this. In the fourth century, okay, the Council of Laodicea, uh, which is a council for the Eastern Church, restricted singing 
took trained choirs of priests. Now, scholars debate how long it took uh, for that actually to happen. By the Western church, a century or two later, singing had really dropped out of church. The only people that sang in church were trained choirs of priests from about four, the 4th, 5th century up until John Huss, which is in the 1400s. So for a thousand years, the common people, not only did they not take the communion wine, only the bread, but they also never could sing in church. So their experience of church really was one of spectating. It sounds like a common or sort of a, a very modern problem, actually. We have that same issue today, don't we? Um, one of the things that made Reformed worship so, just, just really so powerful and so um, remarkable was the way it was interactive, the way it engaged people and involved people. No longer did they just see and hear, but they actually got to speak and engage, right? So, you know, singing had dropped out of the church. Um, John Huss and the Bohemian Brethren recovered congregational singing. Um, they, you know, also not just congregational singing, but singing in the vernacular, in the language of the people. They produced all these hymn books. Actually, before Martin Luther even put the 95 Theses up on the door, they had already been working with hymns for a long time. The Council of Constance, which burned John Huss at the stake, also reiterated this. If laymen are forbidden to preach and interpret the scripture, much more are they forbidden to publicly sing in church. That's the Council of Constance, 1415. See, what's really fascinating is that, you know, there are actually numerous statements um, from Roman Catholics at the time of the Reformation that they were more concerned about Luther's hymns than they were any of his writings. There's a Carmelite monk who, who was famous for stating that Luther damned more souls to hell by his hymns than by any of his writings, Right? Singing was actually very important. This is what I mean by the reformers will say things that are kind of negative about the arts. Um, they also say some really positive things. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But in general, the arts actually had quite a big role to play in the Reformation. Now, Luther, Luther wants to use all the arts. He has some famous statements. He wants to use all the arts in the service of the gospel. Uh, but eventually, even he gets to the point where he says that he wishes that the images would disappear. He just isn't going to actually remove them himself. He's hoping that as the gospel is preached, people will realize that it's the word of God that matters most, and they'll quit caring so much about the images, and they'll just disappear. Um, John, John, or, sorry, Zwingli is actually much more radical. Zwingli actually doesn't, um, doesn't even allow singing to go on in his worship service. There's no singing in Zwingli's service. Um, Luther, for instance, he says it's impossible to not form an image of, of God in your mind when you read the Bible. And as a matter of fact, the German Bible that he publishes is filled with woodcuts, pictures, illustrations, right? So, you know, the, the reformers, at least Luther more than, more than the others, uh, is very open to art and, and, um, and images. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of finish this with this, this um, pointing you to a book that I found very helpful in thinking about this. A guy named Peter Matheson wrote a book called the, the Imaginative World of the Reformation, where he talks about how most of us, particularly if you were like me and you've you know, come to understand church history through reading kind of reform books and banner truth books and books that really highlight the importance of preaching, and not to denigrate preaching, but the Reformation was not just a preaching movement. Um, it, it really, what Matheson argues is rather than it just being a doctrinal shift, rather than it just being sort of new social structures 
happening. The best way to understand the Reformation is it was a shift in the imaginative world. And what he says is that when your metaphors change, your whole world changes. He actually, Peter Matheson is an expert in popular culture of the Reformation in late medieval period. And it's a fascinating book because he, he, you know, over and over again he shows in the songs and in the woodcuts and the art and all these different things over and over again that right before the Reformation, the dominant metaphor that people think of when they think about Christ is Christ as judge. Now that's a biblical image. It's a biblical image. But when it has no context with all the other biblical metaphors, it becomes a very oppressive image. I don't know if you saw the movie, the Martin Luther movie, um, right? And there's one scene where they've got the, the passion play kind of going through the town. And it's just, you know, it's just like trying to scare the crud out of people. And, and that really is kind of, that was the way people thought about Jesus. He says, what's fascinating is as soon as the reformers come on the scene, who, you know, are basically people like Luther and Calvin are trained to read the Bible like lawyers. They're trained, like law- they're trained as lawyers to actually read a text for what it says. And they begin to actually preach what it says. He says what you find is almost, almost instantly all of the, all the popular culture is filled with an explosion of new metaphors. No longer just Christ as judge, but you know, God as father and Christ as friend and older brother. All these you know, biblical images, the rose of Sharon, the one who's fairer than the fairest attendant. All these biblical images start to just completely enrich people's faith. They, they, all of a sudden they had this small little view of God, and now their whole world has been exploded and refashioned. So the imagination is actually critical to understand the Reformation, even if, in some ways, maybe the Reformers themselves didn't really understand what was fully going on. Right? All right, how about Calvin? Calvin's views. Um, Calvin didn't really write so much on the arts in particular. And much of what he wrote was in the context of talking about worship. So we have to be a little careful here. Um, I know much less about visual art than I do about music, so I'm going to tell you a couple things. Um, Calvin's Geneva Catechism summarizes his view pretty well. He says, it says this, Does the second commandment prohibit us entirely from painting anything or sculpting images? No, is the answer. But it does forbid these two things, that we make images either for representing God or for worshiping him. And I think that's, that's a pretty balanced view. That's a pretty representative statement of Calvin. But then there are times when he says things that are more disparaging about the arts. And this is the, kind of the trouble in trying to figure out, you know, what was his view. Um, there's a letter that he writes to a friend in 1540 where he says this, Those who seek in scholarship nothing more than an honored occupation with which to beguile the tedium of idleness, I would compare to those who pass their lives looking at paintings. Like that would be a complete waste of time. So he wants to say, no, you're not forbidden, but you've got to be careful. And then he'll make statements like that. I think one of his fullest statements comes from chapter 11, uh, book 1, chapter 11 of the uh, Institutes. And I want you to, I put this on your thing, I know it's a little hard to read, but follow me with this one, because this is probably his fullest statement on the images. He says, I am not gripped by the superstition of thinking absolutely no image is permissible. So he rejects that. The idea that we can have no images and should have no images, that's superstition, and I reject it. But because sculpture and painting are gifts of God, I seek a pure and legitimate use of each, lest those things which the Lord has conferred upon us for his glory and our good be not only polluted by perverse perverse misuse, but also turned to our destruction. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, 
These things are gifts of God. Painting and sculpture. And they're for God's glory and for our good. But we need to be careful. Okay? He goes on, and uh, you can see where I underlined later. He says, It remains that only those things are to be sculpted or painted which the eyes are capable of seeing. Let not God's majesty, which is far above the perception of the eyes, be debased through unseemly representations. Within this class, some are, uh, some are histories and events, some are images and forms of bodies without any depicting of past events. The former have some use in teaching or admonition. As for the latter, I do not see what they can afford other than pleasure. Um, and then he talks, talks um, a little bit more at the very end of, of this quote. He says, I only say that even if the use of images contained nothing evil, still it still has no value for teaching. Now, what you need to understand about Calvin is, for one thing, the kinds of images he's talking about um, he's probably talking about pictures of saints and biblical people. And I think what he's probably referring to is the fact that they're not very good representations of what actually the Bible is talking about. Um, the, the other thing he talks about, sort of pictures of landscapes or nature, in his day, landscape, people, people didn't yet think of landscapes as a subject in art. It was only sort of background material. And one of the things actually I'm going to talk about in a, in a couple minutes is you know, Calvinist theology actually says the real world really matters. And so as you see the influence of Calvinism in art, actually people begin to pay much more attention to the real world and to picture it in a way that you can see God's glory, uh, even in the physical, even in what seems like the mundane, which flows out of Calvin's thought, actually, as I'm going to tell you in a minute. Um, but there's definitely some of that, again, some of that tension there, um, because he's thinking in terms of, it's almost like even though he doesn't say it, he seems to be comparing it to the value of preaching and to the value of the word. He's very concerned that God's glory might be eclipsed in some way from an image or that the preaching of the word might somehow be secondary. And that, again, that's what his experience was. People would go to church in the medieval period. They would never hear sermons. They would never hear the word explained, uh, but just these visuals, okay? So, you know, most of what Calvin writes about what we might call visual art is really an attack against idolatry and the way images have been used in idolatrous worship. Um, another reason that Calvin argues against visual art in the churches is he says that it wasn't the historical practice of the church. He argues that it, that it really, for the first 500 years, the church never had visual images. Now, the thing about that is he's wrong. He's wrong about that. And um, it's hard to know what to do with this a little bit. Um, I mean, there's two, two problems with the argument. First, you know, most of the early places where Christians met um, weren't solely for the purpose of worship. They were houses. Okay? So it's maybe not so fair to say, well, they didn't you know, have artwork in their houses of worship. Well, they were houses. They weren't houses of worship. Um, and we know from the catacombs there were a lot of, actually, images going on in some ways. Um, and what's interesting is there was a council, uh, a synod in Spain, that in the early 300s forbid churches to put paintings on the walls, which means that it must have been going on if they had to take a, a stand against it, okay? And Calvin actually refers to that decision as one of his evidences that the church forbids art. So, you know, I, I think we're all guilty of this, aren't we? Trying to read history to support our views. Um, Calvin, you know, generally is really actually in his worship really trying to get back to the purity 
of early church worship. He knows that in a lot of ways he's breaking with what immediately had come before, the medieval worship that had come right before him. He wants to get back to the early church worship, but without images. The early church had a more balanced view of images uh, and, and visual uh, imagery in the, in the church than he did. Um, you know, I could talk about the sacraments. I don't want to take too much time on this, but to say, you know, for Calvin, really it's the sacraments that are the image of God that should, um, that should help us. But even here, you know, for him, and I, and I think this is, this is right, the sacraments are secondary. They're confirmation signs to the Word. This is why Calvin doesn't want the sacraments to be celebrated, the Lord's Supper, for instance, without preaching. Right? Um, he actually submitted to preaching without the sacraments in Geneva, even though he wanted to do the sacraments, you know, whenever people gather together. Uh, I don't think he ever would have submitted to sacraments without preaching. He thought that you had to have the, the preached word, um, even though the visible word helps kind of signify and teach you even in a different way. Uh, it's really signifying or connecting to the visible word. So um, I put some stuff on there. And you need to understand, Calvin is much more um, aware of the visual nature of the sacraments and the way that it encourages us to... You know, and he uses a lot of visual and sensory language when he talks about the, sen- the, the sacrament. Um, he's much, much better on this than Zwingli. You know, Zwingli says, you know, we can do the Lord's Supper once a year as sort of a memorial, and if you do it too often, it'll actually lose some of its power. Um, Calvin doesn't have that. You know, Calvin really thinks that this is important, but only if it's connected to the Word. What you see kind of running through all this is the Word, the importance of the Word, and the preaching of the Word. And images need to make sure that they don't eclipse that or distract from that in any way. Um, I, I really think, you know, a question you could ask Calvin is, are the sacraments the only visuals that we are to have in worship? And is that even possible? You know, because I, I talk to some of my Reformed friends and they, they want to act like, you know, we can't have any other visuals because it will take away from the sacraments. But of course you have all kinds of visuals. You can't help it. You have ritual actions in every church and every worship service. You have architecture. You have... Uh, art, or even what you might consider not art, um, is art in a sense, right? It, there, there's always some visual context. Even though two years before Calvin got to Geneva, they'd had an iconoclastic revolt and they'd stripped the art out of the churches, it was still a beautiful church building. You still, you know, the pulpit had, had sort of this majestic sense to it. There, there's still a lot of things going on. Even the way he, you know, changed where the, 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 you know, the table for the Lord's Supper and the pulpit were in relation to each other. There's always visual communication that's going on. And I think what we need to be careful of as Reformed people, and really all, all of us Christians, is to think in terms of are we being thoughtful about the visuals that are being communicated? Because there is communication that's going on that way. Uh, in other words, you know, do we unwittingly communicate that God doesn't care about beauty? We may be trying to communicate you know, something, that, and, and even be, you know, we don't want to communicate this, we don't want to communicate this, we've got to be careful of this, and yet unwittingly communicate that God doesn't care about beauty, or that God only cares about your mind, but he's not really that interested in your emotions. Now, Calvin would have abhorred that idea. If you, um, you know, if you read his introduction to his commentary in the Psalms, where he talks about the Psalms and the anatomy of the soul, and he's very concerned about religious feelings. Very concerned. And yet, Sometimes I think the over-concern or probably the, the intense concern for the misuse of images 
um, in the Calvinist tradition ends up basically saying that plainness is the only kind of appropriate visual context for worship. I, I, I think that that's, that's worth pondering. Um, do we communicate, you know, that, um, yeah, that, that beauty is really not that important? What about Calvin's view of music? He really has a more positive view overall about music than he does about images. Um, he goes so far as to imply, and this I think probably then beyond I would even be willing to say, that, that singing is actually essential for joy to happen in the worship service. Um, one of the things that he does when he first gets to Geneva, um, he could basically kind of, he and Farrell deliver to the city council four non-negotiables for them about what worship needs to be and how some things need to change. Um, eventually, it's part of what actually gets them kicked out. Um, but one of those four negotiables for Calvin is music and the songs. Um, he even can say positive things about instrumental music. Um, but, you know, here's what he says. You know, at this was interesting, 1537, he, he's been there a year now, um, or not even, but he's, he's been there not, not very long at all. In 1537, these four non-negotiables he delivers. At this point, he's not ever heard metrical psalm singing, which is, you know, what he becomes famous for as far as worship music. He's never heard it, but he thinks that it's what they need to do. This is what he says to the city council. We are unable to compute the profit an edification which will arise from this, he, he means from starting to sing psalms, except after having experimented. He's like, let's just give this a try, guys. Let's just experiment with this. Who knows how much good it could do? Certainly as things are, he means right now in Geneva, the prayers of the faithful are so cold that we ought to be ashamed and dismayed. The psalms can incite us to lift our hearts to God and move us to an ardor in invoking and exalting with praises the glory of his name. He really thinks it's absolutely vital that our passions and our emotions be engaged in worship. And he thinks that singing is actually one of the best ways to do that. And absolutely vital. But he and Pharaoh soon get kicked out of Geneva. <laughs> they don't go along with that, actually, at this point. He goes to a place called Strasbourg. And in Strasbourg, he meets a German Lutheran guy named Bootser. And for the first time, he actually gets to hear people singing in church and singing psalms and hymns, because Bootser was a Lutheran, the Lutherans liked hymns. Um, they're singing German. Calvin doesn't understand German, but he's still so moved by it that he's like, yes. It's kind of like, this was, uh, this was the theory. This is what I thought. And now I've seen it, and look at what it's doing. So he begins, actually, there in Strasbourg, to work on the psalms. Now, here's something you probably didn't know. Did you know that Calvin himself was a poet? The first version of the Strasbourg Psalter uh, actually has 19 psalm texts in it, Calvin does six of those himself. And he also um, does a couple other ones. He puts the creed, the Apostles' Creed, to meter so that it can be sung. He also takes the Song of Simeon, the New Testament song, puts it, and he takes the Ten Commandments and sets the Ten Commandments to meter. Calvin does all this. He's also credited um, with one hymn, one hymn, though it doesn't seem that it was ever used in their church. But he is credited with a hymn. So Calvin was a poet. And he thinks, you know, that this is, all this stuff is really important. In 1542, he publishes the Genevan liturgy, even though he's not in Geneva. You know, but this is the liturgy of... He's basically pre preaching to a church of refugees, French-speaking refugees there in Strasbourg. And um, they're beginning to, to use this music. And, the, and it's just electrifying what's happening. Um, he talks about this. Now he's actually experienced it. It's not just 
theory at this point. He says, singing has great power and vigor to move and inflame men's hearts to call upon and praise God with a more vehement and burning zeal. So who could argue against it, right? Um, He also, though, at this point says one of his most famous statements about worship music, that the music itself should be neither light nor frivolous, but have gravity and majesty, as St. Augustine says. And thus there is a great difference between the music which seeks which one makes to entertain men at table and in their homes, and the psalms which are sung in the church in the presence of God and his angels. Now, there is no doubt that Calvin tried to remove all secular influence from worship music that was done in the church. Here, he's making a strong distinction between the music that's appropriate for church and the music that's appropriate um, in other settings. Later, he's actually going to go even farther than this, but I'll get to that. Now, Calvin actually knows that he's breaking... At this point, from the liturgical music of the recent past and the music of the present. And in a lot of ways, he really succeeded in doing this. The Genevan Psalms really, in a lot of ways, become a new musical style. The question is, for me, as I think as a musician, is um, is it a musical style that sort of could go on through all cultures and through all centuries and still communicate majesty and awe? In other words, can you write a tune in the 16th century in Geneva that expresses awe and majesty and have that express awe and majesty in all contexts and all times and all places? That, I think, is an important question. Um, Let me read you this testimony of the singing. Now, this is actually a couple years after Calvin left Strasbourg, but we do have this um, testimony left by a young man who was visiting Strasbourg on Easter and worshipped at Calvin's church. And he said this, On Sundays, we sing a psalm of David or some other prayer taken from the New Testament. The psalm or prayer is sung by everyone together, men as well as women, with a beautiful unanimity. Calvin didn't believe that you should sing in harmony or in parts, but everybody should sing unison. Um, He says this is something beautiful to behold. For you must understand that each one has a music book in his hand. And you need to understand how huge a success the Geneva Psalter was. Um, it's estimated that, you know, within, geez, really, you know, not by the end, it comes out in the final version, 1562. By the end of the century, it's estimated there were 100,000 copies in existence. Because people now actually carry their own books to church and take their own books home and use them. Um, it, it becomes part of the warp and the woof of life in Geneva. John Whitley, who directs the Calvinist Institute of Worship, has an amazing... Uh, article on the spirituality of the Psalter in Calvin's Geneva. Um, it, just amazing, the influence. And, and it's translated into nine other languages and goes through 30 editions very quickly. It's, it's a huge success. Um, he, he, the guy's talking about this, you know, that everyone has the music book in their hands so that they don't lose touch with one another. In other words, so that they all can sing together. He says, never did I think that it could be as pleasing and delightful as it is For five or six days at first, I looked upon this delightful little company, exiled from countries everywhere for having upheld the honor of God and his gospel. I would begin to weep, not at all from sadness, but from joy at hearing them sing so heartily. And as they sang, giving thanks to the Lord that he had led them to a place where his name is honored and glorified. No one could believe the joy which one experiences when one is singing the praises and wonders of the Lord in the mother tongue as one sings them here. Man. I, I don't know if you can, if we can really under, understand how powerful 
this singing in the vernacular was for forming them as a community. Worship is always formative. It always shapes and molds us. It's a great story Margaret Dawn likes to tell about the, um, the Czechoslovakian revolution, what's called the Velvet Revolution under Václav Havel. Havel was not only the first president of the Czech Republic, but he was also a poet and a playwright, really a playwright. And um, he was asked one time, how was it that this revolution happened in such a way that it was really a bloodless revolution? And he said that, um, he has this great statement where he says, basically in Czechoslovakia we had a parallel society. And in that parallel society, sorry, the Christian society, we told our stories and sang our songs so that the truth is, was so in us that we could go out into the streets of Prague and tell the communists, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. I actually had an opportunity to hear um, Dr. Hughes Old tell a story about a friend of his who was, uh, I, I guess, I don't know if he was the patriarch. Of, it was a very kind of high guy in the Eastern Orthodox Church there in Prague who actually was preaching a sermon on uh, the walls coming down around Jericho, Joshua and Jericho, preaching a sermon on how those walls came around. And he said, you know, the people marched out of the church and marched over to the president to the president's house and just started camping around. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience. Have you ever preached a sermon that's caused a dictator to fall? Right? But that's, but that's what Havel said. It was, it was because we were being formed by an alternate reality, a truth. We came together, we sang our songs, we told our stories, and, and we were shaped and molded by a truth that we could go out in the world and say, the lies don't work. Right? Wow. That's what was going on. That's what was going on in Geneva. Now, I've got a lot of other stuff here about Calvin's you know, stuff and about music. I, what I want you to understand is he really thinks music is a great gift of God, but he thinks it's potentially dangerous. Uh, a little later, a couple years later, he for the first time invokes Plato and Plato's concern for music and how it can move men's passions. I, I think that that's unfortunate at that point um, because I think Plato's idea of music is actually quite different from the Bible's. Um, Bill Edgar talks about in his book, this in his book, Taking Note of Music. It's a very different thing to think, as the Greeks did, that music was a direct, either a direct gift from God or something stolen from the gods. Uh, most of the ancient cultures believed somehow that God had directly given them or the gods had given them musical instruments. The Bible's understanding of that is very different. Genesis 4 says that Jubal was the father of those who play instruments. In other words, music is, is a way of humans living out who they are before God, using the stuff that he's made. And, you know, the, the, the importance of that is that we, we don't just think that, that sort of music is this sort of heavenly kind of stuff that we're, you know, powerless to, to deal with. But Calvin seems to fall into that a little bit. He begins, you know, you begin to see in some of his later writings as he goes on about music, a concern for the power of music and the potential bad effect of that power. He even uses this image at one point of saying that, you know, music can make um, bad words that much more wicked because it sort of is like a funnel that sort of pours the poison into us. So the, the melody, the best thing Calvin eventually gets, says, and this is in this, the uh, 1543 Institutes, he says that basically the best safety in, in light of the power of music is for us only really to sing the Psalms of David. Now, we don't want to be too harsh on Calvin for this. You have to understand, nobody had sung for a thousand years in church. 
he's kind of starting from scratch, right? And, and he's looking around. He's seeing there's a, lot of, there's a lot of, you know, kind of really bawdy music that's out there that's being sung in Geneva, and he's always having to try and get the council to stop people singing this kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of Roman Catholic music and influences from that. There's a lot of stuff going on, and he's basically saying, look, it seems to me the best thing for us to do is just sing the psalms. You know? Now, he actually never goes so far as to say it's forbidden to sing anything else. But he says it such a strong way. It's so much better to sing the psalms that you kind of would be like, well, you really shouldn't sing anything else. Um, and he actually, though, at some point he gets to the point where he actually asks the Genevan Council to ban all other vocal music. He doesn't say this. He's still open to instrumental music. Bootser actually says that we shouldn't have any music except church music. We should get rid of all secular music and just have church music replace it all. That's what Bootser tries to do. Calvin doesn't go quite that far, but he wants all vocal music to be Christian music. Um, fortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but, he, you know, here's what's interesting. Calvin cares a lot about excellence in music. He recruits some of the best poets and best musicians of his day to come and work on the Genevan Psalter. He actually spends a lot of time and effort working on it. We may think of him as somebody who preaches sermons and writes commentaries and argues about theology with people, but he actually works on the Genevan Psalter his whole life. The final edition comes out 1562, and he dies two years later, right? He's working on this the whole time. He has a goal that they will be able to sing all 150 psalms in the vernacular, in their language, each psalm with its own tune. He never quite gets there. They end up having 125 different tunes for the 150 psalms. But it's, you know, it's an amazing work, an amazing accomplishment. And for him, central to the work he's trying to do as a pastor and a reformer in Geneva. It's not over here on the, on, sort of over here on, on the edges of what he's concerned about. You understand? Worship is very central and important to him. And, you know, he, actually there's quite a lot of our reformed heroes that were very concerned about this. And we tend to, again, I tend to think of the, the important things are, are the preaching. But, you know, I don't know if you know this, but George Whitfield put out a hymnal. You know this? George Whitfield put out a hymnal. Right? We know of him as the great preacher. If you read, you know, biographies about George Whitfield, you would be hard-pressed to actually find that out. Um, J.C. Ryle put out a hymnal. I have it at home. It's amazing. Charles Spurgeon put out a hymnal. Right? Philip Schaff, the great church historian, wrote an amazing hymnal. Served on a lot of hymnal editing committees. Spent a lot of time doing that sort of thing. So many of the people that we think of, see, I guess what I'm arguing for is preaching alone is not enough. The arts matter. And so many of our best preachers knew this and spent a lot of time working on this. All right? I want to jump into the... Uh, into this other trajectories, because I feel like I've been going too slow on this other stuff. Here, here's some trajectories of, about the arts that, um, that I think are really helpful to think about. The first is this. Calvin teaches and believes sola scriptura, that scripture is our only authority, our absolute authority, right? Um, and the reason this is important is it allows Calvin's followers to disagree with Calvin at times. It allows actually there to be um, progress and development in the Calvinist view of thinking about the arts. Because in some places, Calvin's views, uh, which I'm going to talk about now, um, are leading the way to good things. In some places, maybe they're not. Um, but the idea of sola scriptura means that we can critique even Calvin. Right Now, I don't know how many of y'all have read Calvin or really are worried about 
critiquing Calvin or disagreeing with Calvin. Maybe that's not a big concern. But for, for centuries, it has been a big concern. I, I mean, you know, here, here's an interesting little, little tidbit for you. Louis Bourgeois, who's, you know, kind of the great court musician from, from the French court, Calvin manages to get him to come to Geneva to work on putting psalm tunes to the Genevan psalms. And, you know, at one point, Louis Bourgeois actually changes one of the Genevan tunes, and he gets thrown in jail for it. Now, Calvin, Calvin actually went to the city council, interceded, and got him out of jail after a day. But the sense was, you know, because Calvin didn't approve this, we're going to throw the guy in jail. So I'm saying so even though Calvin didn't, didn't probably ever write that it was forbidden to do that, and he actually tried, got the guy out of jail, his influence is huge. Um, for his followers, it's a big thing to break with him. But eventually, of course, they do because of sola scriptura. The idea that scripture is our only rule for faith and practice. It doesn't mean it's the only thing we listen to when thinking about questions about art and church. Tradition matters. The culture we're living in matters. Stuart's going to talk some about, about that. I mean, he decided that we need to sing and do worship in a language that people understand. Right? He's adapting to the culture he lives in. But scripture is the sole authority. The, the uh, followers of Calvin can critique Calvin. And we have to critique him because sometimes he goes beyond scripture in his judgments. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you have to sing in unison in church. Another thing that Calvin said, that you should only have one note per syllable in a word. You can't have two syllables, two notes to go with one syllable. If a word is because, it can only have two notes. But the Bible doesn't say that, right? So, you know, we have to be able to say, okay, that, you know, I'm interested in knowing why he thought that and how he thought that was an application of doing things decently in order and being unified, but at some point we have to say, I don't know if that's really important. Um, second, second point, God's beauty is seen in all things. This, Calvin speaks powerfully about uh, beauty and how God has given it to us. He talks about God giving us taste buds. Why did he need to give us taste buds? Why did he create a world full of beautiful colors and beautiful sights and sounds and smells? Um, he has great things to say about seeing God's glory in all of creation, which he calls the theater of God's glory. Here's one of the famous ones from the Institutes. Calvin says, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. You cannot in one glance survey this most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. This is a guy who thinks beauty matters and thinks that God's beauty is seen everywhere. He particularly talks this way about the creation and the universe. He was very actually interested in scientific studies in the universe, and he's very interested in the human body, which had become uh, something of, you know, a real sort of topic of scientific inquiry. People were discovering all kinds of things about the human body, and he, he draws upon this to talk about God's wisdom and how it's seen in, uh, even in the creation of our bodies. So this is why Calvinists have and should take the real world seriously. This, I think, is actually one of the uh, very important things for thinking about the arts. We believe that the real world matters. Now, there have been times when Calvinists have probably been guilty of sort of this kind of dichotomy between the visible and the spiritual and thinking that the spiritual is kind of just sort of up here in the ether atmosphere somewhere. You certainly get that in Zwingli. You get that in some of the Puritans. But Calvin, Calvin is not that. And certainly Calvinist thought takes the real world, real world seriously. says that God's beauty is seen in it. It matters. Even what you might think of as mundane really matters. 
beauty matters. And one of the things that artists do so well is they draw our attention to aspects of God's beauty. You know, whenever you paint a painting or, you know, write a poem, you're always having to be selective. You're choosing to highlight some things and pass over others. Unless you're doing so, even in, even in photographs, right? Even in the composition, you're, you're highlighting particular aspects and saying, look with me at this aspect of God's beauty and God's glory. That's very much in line with what Calvin is trying to get us to do, right? That we as Christians should seek to glorify God by enjoying and reverencing Him because of the world that He's made. Beauty matters. Um, I honestly think that the Dutch Reformed are farther ahead than the PCA in this area. Um, I've been very blessed to have interactions with folks like at Calvin College and their worship symposium. And um, I, I, I really am hoping that the PCA begins to think about this in some ways. The idea, because I think in some ways this is a conversation that's still have to, hard to have in our denomination. Ricky Kidd, who's down at uh, RTS Orlando, you know, talks about how, you know, the original, you know, the original sort of, uh, who is it, um, Gregory of Nyssa, he's the guy that writes about images and icons. Eventually, he goes too far, but he actually talks about how one of the reasons that Christians should, you know, be concerned about art and even make representations of Jesus in particular is an apologetic against Islam. It's a very fascinating thing. He's writing that in, at the beginning of Islam, saying that images really matter. It's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity is we believe God has taken on human flesh and lived among us. And yet for so many Christians, they've been so terrified about the idea that we might picture Jesus wrongly that they don't picture him at all, which, of course, does communicate a particular picture about him. I know Stuart Latterer, he loves, he loves to go off on this. Remember, we, have, we used to be on a committee where we'd uh, ordain or examine men for ordination in the PCA. And he would always want to ask him about, should we picture Jesus in children's Bibles? If you picture everybody else but you don't picture Jesus, you end up basically saying and teaching your kids that Jesus isn't a real man. So you've you got to be careful about this stuff. And um, I, I think there's definitely work for us, and maybe some of you all in this room can be part of that in helping us think about these issues. Beauty matters. And it really did matter to the Reformers and to the Reformation. Um, the next point is this. Solo Deo Gloria. God should be glorified in all things. Now, this is important to think about the arts. One of the things that helped me so much as a musician, when I first heard it was Quentin Schultz and Bill Romanowski from Calvin College came to Nashville and gave a little talk about the arts. And this one thing they said was so helpful to me. They said, what's the purpose of man? What is it? Anybody? God, glorify, God, yeah, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What's the purpose of art? Now, you can think of all kinds of things. The purpose of art is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The importance of that is that so many Christians would go wrong at this first point when they're thinking about art. They think that the purpose of art is something that may be a valid sub-purpose. Like the purpose of art is to show forth beauty. Or the purpose of art is to communicate truth. Or the purpose of art is to entertain or to give people recreation or to help you know, touch them in their sorrow. All kinds of things that are valid, important sub-purposes. But if you elevate any of those to be the overarching purpose of art, you've really got big problems in the way you think about art. And so much of the problems of Christian thinking about the arts is we've elevated a valid sub-purpose and made it the whole purpose. This is the whole problem with quote-unquote Christian music industry, which I've been a part of. It's the idea, I mean, it got to the point where I remember a friend of mine, Wes King, um, he and his wife had struggled with infertility and you know, had written this amazing song about, you know, just questioning, crying out to God 
You know, the whole song is a cry out to God. Do, did we wait too long? You know, all these sorts of questions that go through your mind. And I remember the Gospel Music Association deciding that it wasn't a Christian song because it didn't say Jesus enough. They literally came up with a definition that you had to have so many mentions of Jesus for it to be considered a Christian song to be eligible for a double word, right? That kind of thinking is really deeply problematic. What have they done? They basically elevated a violent subpurpose, telling people about Jesus, and made it the whole purpose of art. Can't do that, right? And it's this sola deo gloria theological principle that helps us here. God is to be glorified in all things. And what art is about is about... Um, about human um, human being. This connects to the next one, covenant theology. See, this, this idea that all of life should be understood in terms of the relationship between God and man, that all of life, all of life is spiritual, all of life is religious. Everything we do is, is, is done with the stuff that God has made, either in obedience or resistance to what he's made us for and what he's made his creation for, Right? And this is, this is helpful because this really is what art is. Art and all culture is a map of reality. It's a way of taking the stuff God has made and saying this is what it means. Right? We're saying something with it. And we may be amplifying what God is saying or we might be fighting against it. In actuality, we usually are doing both. And this is true of Christians and non-Christians. Even, even non-Christians, you see, are dealing with the stuff that God has made general revelation. We call the stuff that God has made general revelation. That means God speaks through it. He says this actually in Psalm 19, where it says the heavens declare your glory. That's actually a pretty active word. It doesn't say that they just give passive witness to your glory if you happen to investigate. No, they're declaring, preaching, if you will. How are you responding? God said that he created your sexuality for you to be connected to somebody for you to commit to somebody. Now, I work with a lot of students that are trying to make it say something else. Right? They're, they're fighting. They're, you're either going along with and, and agreeing with what God has said he's made, or you're fighting against it. This is deeply important to understand about art. Because art can, can, is always involved in this dynamic tension because it's human activity, and humans are involved in this dynamic tension. It's also one of the reasons why Christians don't have to be afraid of saying that non-Christians have heard things more clearly than we have. Because what non-Christians are dealing with is the stuff God has made, which is stamped with meaning. And there are things that they have heard that maybe we've blocked out by our theology, by our culture, by the people that we listen to. Uh, listen, you have a theology. If you're Reformed, if you're in the, in, the, in the line of Calvin, you have a theology that helps you understand why sometimes non-Christians speak more truthfully to you than Christians about the world that we live in, particularly. Walker Percy said it this way, bad books lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. And that's what bad art does, too. It lies. Uh, Bill Egger makes a great point about the importance of representing faithfully the tension between evil and hope. In other words, so often we, we can't really deal with this. Calvin has a very sober, realistic view of evil. And, and this is important um, because it helps him and it helps all of us to say that we do not have to, we don't have to paint little silly paintings that just 
pretend that everything's wonderful and think that that's Christian art. Um, Christian art should speak truthfully. Um, and, and yet here's the thing. After the fall, beauty and truth are often intention. I remember ask, asking uh, the artist Mako Fujimura one time, we were talking about, you know, the idea of beauty and is there an idea of absolute beauty. Um, and he said, well, you know, there's lots of, you know, attempts in the art world sometimes to try to derive from the, the light waveform, you know, what that sort of absolute standard of light is. But I, honestly, he says, I think that the ultimate standard for beauty is the cross. And that's a really ugly image. It is. See, the idea of beauty gets deconstructed and reconstructed by the cross. Um, the other thing that's important, and I've kind of connected to this a little bit, uh, I jumped ahead, but I need to go back to this one, common grace. Common grace is the idea that God gives good gifts to believers and unbelievers alike. And, and the Bible actually is, is kind of shocking in the things it says about this. Paul actually in Acts 14 tells unbelievers that God has given joy into their hearts through not only rain, but crops. Now crops are cultivated. That means human beings were involved in that. And joy for Paul is a pretty heavy theological word. If you read the book of Philippians, it's a strong word. And, and Paul goes so far as to tell non-Christians that God has given joy into their hearts partly through the product of human hands and human work. Now that's, that's pretty powerful. A, a lot of Christians sort of have this idea that if it's not Christian, that it can't be good. And, the, and they miss the, this idea of common grace, that God has given good gifts and even insight and even the abilities to make things that speak powerfully to us. Common grace is important. This is one of the reasons, I think, why we should not, we should not dismiss popular culture. And uh, I, I know that there's debates about that sort of thing. I think there's lots I could say about the high art, low art debate. I don't think it's very helpful at all. I think when you begin to understand that culture is a map of reality rather than static little things, this is a product of culture, this isn't, um, then you begin to understand that the distinctions between high and low art really don't make a lot of sense. And historically, they're grounded in, well, sort of racist kind of situations. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a thing that Christians should uh, accept without doing some more uh, study sort of on where that, all those ideas come from. But here's the point. There's nothing that humans make that doesn't evidence God's common grace and God's creation in some way even fighting against him, right? And, and therefore, you know, Christians tend to think of, uh, Turnout has this great article, which I, I put in here, you can look it up online even, where he talks about how Christians tend to think that popular culture is either trivial or dangerous. And that tends to be, you know, you can listen to people talk about pop culture, either it's trivial, don't bother with it, um, or it's dangerous. Of course, it can't be both. And if it really is people making something with the stuff that God has made, it can't be trivial. It has meaning because even popular culture uses the stuff God has made and stamped with meaning. It uses it and it's fashioning it in some way and it's presenting to us a map of reality. So, um, popular culture, we can talk more about that if you want. Um, one more point about sin and idolatry. Calvinist view of art should always reject sappy, op sappy optimism and simplistic melodramatic depictions of good and evil. This is another thing I think that's often really dissatisfying with Christian art is that it tends to be melodramatic. By melodrama, I mean sort of flat portrayals of this is either good or this is bad. 
um, rather than saying that, you know, like Romans 7 says, you know, sometimes the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. You know, what, what kind of art portrays that sort of situation, uh, that sort of tension? That's the, that's the kind of the world that we live in. Um, there's a famous story about Oliver Cromwell, who's, uh, when he was going to have his official portrait painted, um, he instructed the painter to paint him warts and all. Heard that phrase? Right? That comes out of his Calvinist theology. Don't paint my portrait in a way that will gloss over who God has actually made me to be. You know? Don't just, don't just paint me in a way that everybody will think that you know, I'm something that I'm not. Kind of interesting. Um, the other thing, you know, I, I think Ray might probably talk on this, but Calvin, you know, really, one of the, his concerns about art in the churches is that it costs a lot of money. He, he and the other reformers are always concerned, look, we've got the poor among us. We really need to be better stewards of our money. And uh, that's something I think every church needs to, to wrestle with. Um, two, two more points that I really need to make here, um, and then I'll open it up for questions. Um, Calvin's approach to life is life-affirming um, in its approach to pleasure. He thinks that pleasure is a good thing. Now, it's not purely a good thing. It can be misused. But in general, he really is, is um, concerned that we affirm life. And one of my favorite quotes in this regard is by Harry Blumiers. He wrote a book called The Christian Mind. Um, not saying that Calvin exactly connected the dots the way Blumiers does, but I think, think about this as a vision. When you think about the arts and you think about even a vision for what Trinity could be about. He says this, At a time when Christianity is so widely misrepresented as life-rejecting, rather than life-affirming, it is urgently necessary to write the balance. Especially is this the case where the young are concerned. If we do not sympathize with romanticism, we do not sympathize with youth. If the church does not reckon with romanticism, it does not cater for the young. Strange longings are stirred in us by the grandeur of natural scenery, by the beauty of music and art, by the eyes and voice of the lover or the beloved. The general belief is that in youth, these longings are most profound and perturbing. Whether this is true or not, it is certain that in youth these longings are accompanied by raptures and excitements which the more mature in years are sadly incapable of recapturing. Because they lose their intrinsic joy, we know our early dreams and longings for what they are, the pointers to fulfillment and reality. Here you can see he's influenced by his teacher, C.S. Lewis. They're not ends in themselves, but they are significant disturbers of our peace. Unsatisfied longings must be nourished in us and the elusive dream of fulfillment dangled before us or we should never know that we are not here on earth in our proper resting place. Utterly divested of this disturbing inheritance, men's hearts would never desire the ultimate peace and joy offered by God. The Christian mind makes sense of passionate youthful longings and dissatisfactions as pointers to the divine creation of man and the fact that he is called to glory. Youth is constitutionally hungry to envelop with religious significance, the yearnings aroused by natural beauty, by artistic experience, and by sexual love. Because there is no living Christian mind to interpret this hunger and to show how it may be fed, the young are led astray. He goes on and says that if we cannot articulate a Christianity that makes sense of why beauty moves us, that we have failed to articulate Christianity. That's powerful. That's worth thinking about. When you think about, you know, what did we have Sunday school classes about this past year? That's a good question for a Christian aid committee. It's a good question for pastors to think about, what did I preach about? Does this message ever get communicated? Right? Does this get communicated to your children? Right? Um, 
How about this other one, renewal and reformation? This is interesting. Calvinists tend to, and I don't know much at all about architecture, but one of the, the one essay I did read on that is that Calvinists tend not to create something brand new. They tend to take things that exist and fashion them in a new way and for a new use. I think that's really cool because I think that's a redemptive sort of um, idea that seems to come across in uh, even the Calvinist approach to art and to beauty. And finally, accommodation and incarnation. God has revealed himself through a particular culture. This is the topic that Stuart's going to take up. The Bible is not a book of acultural, timeless truths. I think it's one of the reasons that so much Christian music is, and I'm talking about contemporary Christian music, is less than satisfying, because they tend to just sort of say things like, you should do this, and sort of just kind of preach at you, do this. But, but it's very different than, than the way an artist roots an idea in a particular story. That held, I, I think about the music of Patty Griffin. She, uh, I don't know if you know her music at all, but she did a record, and I, I read an interview with her where she said, this record basically is about how life is difficult, but you've got to keep trudging on. But she never says that in any of the songs in the record. Instead, she writes a song called Making Pies. You know this song? Where she talks about, it's basically a song about a woman who's working at a pie factory in Tabletop, Massachusetts. I mean, she even names the place, right? It's always about particular details. It's a particular story. It's not just a sort of a myth or a fairy tale. It, this woman's working in Tabletop, Mississippi, or Tabletop, Massachusetts, and the story unfolds. You find out that in, the, in World War II, when the bombs rained down upon the world, evidently her love was, was, was killed. And the line that Patty says, she goes, what are you going to do in response to this? You could cry or die or just make pies all day. I'm making pies. You know, I, for the longest time, it bothered me. Why, do, why does Patty Griffin's music speak more powerfully to my students than my sermons? It's because so, so many times in my sermons, I'm just kind of telling them what to do. But I'm not actually putting it in a way that engages the imagination. It, it's fascinating. You know, the best preachers really do that. Even the people that talk about the danger of the imagination actually engage the imagination. Calvin is full of illustrations. It's one of the things that's so amazing about his writing institutes, you think it's going to be this dry, dusty work. If you've never picked it up, it's full of amazing illustrations. I'll close with my favorite one. Because, you know, maybe a lot of you in this room are artists or in, encouraging the arts, and I think one of the one of the great killers of pursuing the art is to be a perfectionist. I mean, it's, at one level, it's helpful to help you get better and better at your craft. At another level, you know, it, I don't know, like I, I just put it this way, you got to write a lot of bad songs before you ever write a good one. And if you can't ever finish one because you're just concerned that it's not perfect yet, it's, it's a real detriment. Calvin talks about, you know, you know, how does God look at the works that we do as Christians that are so faulty, that are so full of sin and unbelief, that are so much more um, based on us trying to impress God than really receiving um, the gospel by grace. How, how does God look at those? And Calvin says, you know, basically, he looks at it like any father would look at the artwork that their six-year-old kid makes. Where does, that, where does that painting go? It goes on the refrigerator. Why? Not because it's great art, but because of the relationship. Right? But see, Calvin is doing great art and even talking that way. So I, I long for the day when we have pastors and preachers and theologians who are also poets and artists. And um, Anyway, I know I've talked a long time. Um, probably got a question or two maybe we've got time for yeah. I, you know, a lot of stuff you probably all just want to stretch and, and go home and 
for coffee and dessert, I heard it's downstairs, right? Yeah, so hang in there. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For Calvin, he's more concerned with communicating simplicity and, and even austerity at times. And part of that is a theological argument. He really believes that a lot of that kind of stuff was part of the shadow of the law that needed to pass away. For instance, Calvin opposes musical instruments in church. And it's really a biblical theological argument. He, he says that those were necessary to incite us to sort of passions and emotions before Christ came. But after Christ came, we shouldn't need that anymore. And he draws a lot of that from the book of Hebrews, which was important to a lot of, a lot of those folks. I, I think that there is something to be said for that. Um, but I think it can be definitely taken to an extreme. I think the extreme certainly is Zwingli and some of the Puritan tradition. There's actually a book that's helpful in this regard by R.J. Gore called Covenantal Worship where he shows kind of the difference between more the continental European Calvinists and Calvin's idea of worship, compares that to Zwingli. And he talks about that what we have in our own PCA history and the Westminster uh, Assembly's documents is really the result of a hundred years of debates between the Anglicans and the Puritans. So they end up maybe saying things more extreme, and they do say things more extreme than Calvin with regard to the austerity that we want in worship. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And I think, you know, I think the reform concern is is the word in that. It should never be a concern that with music that would move our passions. I read the Psalms and I think they expect our passions to be moved and engaged. And and Calvin believed that and thought music was really helpful for that. He was concerned about light or frivolous music that would just move you by itself without the words. He always wants the word to be the thing that is really changing you. And I think, you know, there is a legitimate concern in some kind of modern worship settings, in my opinion, with the worship of worship. In other, in other words, when you, you know, when somebody, you know, comes out of church and says, man, the worship was really great today, what they generally mean is that they got some kind of buzz from the music. And, and that's, a, that's not helpful. I think we need to try and help people understand that worship is more than just that. And I think that um, sort of the emotions where the mind and the understanding is not engaged is not, is not the kind of the biblical goal, I think, for worship. So we shouldn't be afraid of emotional stuff, in my opinion, but we should also seek to have the mind engaged in that. Is that? But I do think, in general, we tend to be, in reform people, a little more uptight about that. <laughs> you know? I know in our church, for instance, you know, we, you know, we're trying to sort of be a PCA church in the midst of a kind of African-American... Anglo mixed community, and that's definitely one of the things we've got to wrestle with. That we have definitely different understandings about what's normal in a worship service with regards to emotional expressiveness. And I think what we all of us need to do is just understand that we may not be right. That what feels comfortable to us may not be right. Uh, and so it's it's worth thinking about. And if we're driven by fear, that's bad. But there is something to be said for. It does seem that, that, that the book of Hebrews seems to say there is a difference between the kind of spectacle of worship and now the, the access we have, you know, um, to God that seems to be different. That's my sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't... 
Right. Yeah, I mean, certainly the pagan worship was a spectacle, too. But, but for Calvin and the Reformers, and a lot in the Reformed tradition, they've been concerned that worship not be a spectacle. And that's why Calvin didn't have choirs. He took the choirs out of, out of church. And I do think that that's a concern. Like, when I'm in my church, and, and if I'm playing a song and we've just finished a song and the congregation applauds, it makes me very uncomfortable. Sometimes I'll actually stop and kind of give them a little rebuke and say, you know, this, this to me communicates, when you do that, you communicate that you feel like an audience. And if that's ever what's communicated in worship, that's a big problem. So I, I do think that there's, you know, we have our own kind of modern ten, ten, tendencies. And I think the, the consumer nature of our culture where people just come to worship to be fed or to be entertained or to get a certain feeling that it's the jo- church's job to dispense to us, all those are deeply troubling to me. And yet, at the same time, we want to affirm that we're whole people. We're not just minds who come to worship just to, you know, have a new idea suggested to us. Yeah. It is interesting, you know, I mean, Calvin renumbered the commandments. You know this from the Roman Catholics? He made the second commandment separate from the first commandment, as the Roman Catholics understood it, because he was so concerned about idolatry, he made it its own commandment, and then combined two at the end, right? Um, certainly for Calvin, the idea, you know, he would want to say, and I think foreign people say, you know, want, you need, there's, I don't, boundaries, the Bible doesn't give us, those kind of laws. It doesn't say, here's the kind of pictures you can do other than that. But, you know, what you're looking for, what I, the way I approach that question is to think in terms of several different streams of ideas that we need to think about. I do think the concern about idolatry is, is, is still a concern. Um, the idea that we, um, yeah, but I think also the concern that we yeah, well, it, I guess it could be. Well, I mean, idolatry, you don't need art to, to be an idolater. You can do it with your own imagination and whatnot. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, it's not the context I've had to think about very much, honestly. So I don't, but I, I don't think there's necessarily rules as much as there might be wisdom that can be gleaned and certain ideas you know, the, the, I mean, some of these things, trying to apply these things in a particular church, like do you have to have the walls to be bare? No, I don't think so. But that is communicating something about what's centrally important. Um, but there's other things that are being communicated maybe unintentionally. Um, th- I do know that this one book I was in, reading with, you know, called uh, Calvinism and the Arts of Reassessment, uh, Joby, he argues that we should be able to have... Um, sort of depictions of Bible scenes and landscapes, you know, in art. But he also argues that we should regularly rotate them so that people don't get too... I I don't know. I mean, those seem like reasonable things to me. Um, But in our tradition, we're always going to want to know, well, how can we do that in a way that the word is still primary? And any particular artistic depiction you do um, is always settling things more 
maybe than when you read the story. I don't know. It's like watching the Lord of the Rings movie. At some level, like the book, you'll never read the book the same way again. And I think there's some of that concern. Some people might say, that's great. Now I know what Aragon looks like. (laughs) But other people are are saddened by that. So uh, both of those need to be respected, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in the worship space itself? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. My own feeling about that is the more you use the full range of biblical metaphors, the better off you'll be. I think that the met- all the various pictures contribute um, in a really vital way to each other. I, I think, you know, for instance... Is the shack trying to communicate one aspect of something that's important about God? Yeah, maybe. But out of context with all the others, it ends up becoming a real distortion, potentially. So that's why, you know, what I see when I look at the Reformation, what's really helpful is that where they had just sort of this monolithic image of Christ as judge, now all of a sudden they have a balance. And yet, you know, for me, I need to continually be in the scriptures, getting that balance continually kind of updated and challenged and poked and prodded. So one of the problems with the visual representation you do, especially if it becomes like a permanent fixture in the worship space, is it's hard to kind of keep having that dynamic interplay, keep challenging with new aspects um, and new... I mean, even when you read the Word, right, you come to see things differently now than you did five years ago. Um, I think that's an important dynamic of the pilgrimage of faith and I wouldn't want to short-circuit that in some way. But yet, also, visual representations may be a helpful aspect. I remember Dr. Calhoun at Covenant Seminary used to say whenever he preaches on the Gospels, he wants to look and see if Rembrandt, you know, painted the scene. And he wants to check it out, almost like a Bible commentary. And I think that that's really, really a good idea, because I know that if you're going to paint a portrait like that, you're going to enter into that story in a pretty intense way. Just like, you know, I mean, John Newton... For instance, at one point, he would, like, attach a, 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 a hymn at the end of his sermon. But eventually, he got to the point where he realized that the poor lace workers in only England actually remembered his text better, his passage better, if he turned it into a hymn and then preached the stanzas of the hymn, which is what he eventually came to do. So there's a set, you know, I think that's, that's really, really interesting, you know, because he had to meditate on that text all week long and then end up presenting it in a way that was really, you know, connected to the imagination. Like, for instance, that, that hymn, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear, was his basically his sermon on Song of Solomon 1-3, which says, Thy name is like ointment, O Lord. So when he preaches that, all of a sudden, you know, his hymn is like this biblical, theological, you know, it's the name of Jesus <coughs> that's sweet and healing. You know, I don't know, I'm not really scratching where you itch, I can tell, but go ahead. We can talk over coffee and cake, too, if we need to. To end. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think, of course, it's always culturally mediated. What about? Yeah. I don't find it necessarily fully convincing, but I do think the concern makes sense in light of his culture and I think makes sense to me in light of the book of Hebrews and the difference in Old Covenant and New Covenant worship. So um, 
I asked actually Dr. Old that very thing. You know, where do they, where's the biblical basis for the simplicity aesthetic of the reformers? And he didn't really have a good answer for me. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, austerity. Oh, well, yeah, that, yeah. 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 Let's just, yeah, let's just build a gymnasium, you know, what? yeah. No, I think that's a legitimate concern, for sure. When we went through a building program, we had both sides of that kind of debate. You know, well, they spent very costly, you know, you contributed very costly materials to the temple, for 